Well, good morning. My name's Nigel. I'm part of the uh, Leaders and Preachers team here at St. John's. And let me just add my welcome to those you've already had to this morning's service here at St. John's. Except, of course, uh, I'm not actually at St. John's. So uh, let me welcome you to uh, my grandchildren's garden, where they've kindly allowed me to borrow some of the bits and pieces out of their sandpit. Now, you'll be saying to yourselves, why on earth is he wanting to play with the sand? Well, the passage that we've got set for us this morning uh, is one that, as I was preparing for this service, kept reminding me of the phrase, drawing a line in the sand. Drawing a line in the sand. Now, if you go to that ultimate source of all wisdom and knowledge, Wikipedia. Wikipedia will tell you that uh, we don't actually know the origin of the phrase drawing a line in the sand. But despite that, it's come down to us as one of those phrases that means making a mark that sets a limit of some kind. Uh, It may be that uh, we're saying to people, you can go this far, but you can't go any further. Or if you do step across the line that's drawn in the sand, there may well be consequences, potentially serious consequences. So I thought, since we're talking about drawing a line in the sand, it would be nice to have some sand to draw a line in. But this morning I'd like to tell you two stories in addition to the Bible reading that we have. One of those is a modern story, reasonably modern anyway. It's about 60 or 70 years old. And the other one is a Bible story that you will know very well. And let's start with the modern story. This, this is a Piper Cruiser. It's a single-engined, three-seater, lightweight aeroplane designed and built by the Piper Aeroplane Company, and they were built between 1946 and 1948. Uh, They built something less than 4,000 of these aeroplanes, and interestingly, perhaps, uh, over 2,000 of them are still flying. Now, I need to cut a fairly long story short because of time. So suffice it to say that one of these aeroplanes was perhaps owned by, but certainly operated by, a young man by the name of Nathaniel Saint. Nate, as he was known to his friends, was not only a pilot, but he was also a missionary. And he was a missionary in the land of Ecuador in South America back in the 1950s. And Nate and four of his friends, uh, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming and Roger Yurdin, together with Nate himself, the five of them, as missionaries, decided that they wanted to reach out with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross to save us from our sins. They wanted to reach out with that gospel to a tribe who lived in the Ecuador jungle. Their name was the Huani tribe. And so, using the aeroplane, Nate 
and the others first located where the Huani tribe lived in the jungle by spotting their buildings from the air. Then they tried to make contact with them, uh, dropping gifts from the aeroplane to them on the ground and receiving gifts back from the tribe to them. I'll leave you to work out how you exchange gifts with a flying aeroplane. But suffice it to say they were going to make contact with this tribe to tell them the gospel. But there is a bit of an issue. The bit of the issue is that this Huani tribe were also known as Alcas. Alcas is the Ecuadorian word for savage. The Huani were not averse to killing each other. They were not averse to killing other tribes round about them. And they were not averse to killing people, especially if they came into their territory and seemed to be some kind of a threat. So there, there is the line in the sand. You see, they could stay behind the line, Nate, Jim and the others. They could stay behind the line and be safe. There would be no threat to the Huani tribe at all, but the Huani tribe would not hear the gospel, or at least not from them. Or they could cross the line in the sand and go into Huani tribe territory and take them the gospel and tell them the good news of Jesus, but potentially face the consequences of that decision. I wonder what you and I would choose in that kind of situation. Let's come for a moment to our Bible reading for today. If you've got a Bible, um, turn it on or open it up at Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 34 of chapter 8 through to verse 1 of chapter 9. Mark's Gospel chapter 8 verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, you called your followers and would-be followers to you to tell them of the conditions of being a disciple, as we would be your disciples today. Enable us to hear what you are saying to us as we seek to follow you. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen. I promised you at the beginning to tell you two stories. The second one is a Bible story, one that you probably know very well. 
If you don't know it, you can look it up and read it in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. The story, not of five young men, but of three young men. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been taken captive into Babylon. But because they're clever guys and they've got certain skills, they've been drafted into King Nebuchadnezzar's civil service. But now the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has set up a statue. And he expects everyone to bow down and worship this statue. And if they won't, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. But Shad, Mish and Abe are good Jewish boys. And amongst other things, they know the commandments of the one true God, which includes, in fact, starts with, have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images and bow down to worship them. So, for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, there is the line in the sand. A line this time drawn by God. And what's the choice? Well, the choice is that they can cross that line and they can go and bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's image and they can be completely safe. They can return to their desks in the civil service and carry on as normal. Or they can stay behind the line and refuse to worship the image and face the consequences of being thrown into the fiery furnace. For Nate Saint and his friends, crossing the line was the problem. For Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, not crossing the line is the potential problem. I wonder which of those options is the one that you and I would choose. In our study of Mark's Gospel over recent weeks, we've come to an important moment. Some people have called this the hinge of the gospel because at this point a new direction is started with the gospel story. Up to now there have been big crowds. We've seen the story of the 5,000 and the 4,000. There's been great teaching by Jesus. There have been healings and deliverances, the provision of food. Jesus and his disciples have been moving from place to place teaching the people many signs and wonders. It's been wonderful. It's almost as though the sun has been shining brightly and everything is glorious. But from this point onwards, Jesus concentrates somewhat more on just his disciples. There are fewer miracles. And instead of traveling all over the place, Jesus begins to head towards Jerusalem And he starts to teach them about his suffering and death. It's as though a dark cloud has crossed the sun. Why has there been this change? What's precipitated this change? Well, Jesus wanted to hear something. We heard about it last week from Rosie. He wanted to know something. What was it? He wanted to know the answer to a question. And the question was, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It is, in fact, a question that we must all answer. 
one day. And Peter, in the story, in the account in Mark's Gospel, gives the answer. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew records. And Jesus says exactly. He commends Peter for his insight. But he then says, as Rosie told us, a rather strange thing. He says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why not? Because, I believe, the majority of the people who are expecting the Messiah, including most of the disciples themselves, are expecting the wrong kind of Messiah. At least, the kind of Messiah they're expecting is not coming now. They're expecting a Messiah who's a conquering king, who's a hero, who's come to restore the kingdom to Israel and put Israel back into the golden period it knew, perhaps under Solomon or David. He wants to throw out the Romans, perhaps. But Jesus has to tell them that, in fact, he, the Messiah, is going to suffer and die. Peter doesn't get it. Peter says, that can't happen to you. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Because you're thinking like men, you're not thinking like God. But Jesus then goes on from there, because we heard most of that last week. Jesus calls the crowd and the disciples to himself. And he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciples, whoever, that's you, Peter, who says that this is not right. That's you, disciples, who have followed Jesus for these last three years. It's you, the crowd, who think that you might want to follow Jesus, you might want to become a disciple. And it's you and me, disciples in the 21st century and onwards, who want to follow Jesus today. You and I must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Peter isn't thinking straight, he's thinking human logic. This must never happen to you. And we struggle with it as well, don't we? People like you and me, we actually want ease, we want comfort, we want peace, we want glory, we want a good life. We don't want difficulty, suffering, potentially death or problems. Yet, interestingly, this is not the first time that this issue has been raised. Back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 11, Jesus in his Beatitudes says, Blessed are you when, when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. In John 15, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, Jesus, they'll persecute you as well. Later, Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.13, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted he tells us. And right here, right here, is the line in the sand. 
Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus says. Stay behind the line, be comfortable, safe, secure, an easy life, contentment, do your own thing, but you cannot be a disciple. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, Jesus says. If anyone is ashamed of me, Jesus says, in this wicked and adulterous generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. You see, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, you and I will stand before him and give an account of who and what we have been. But if instead of staying behind the line, we want to become a disciple and cross the line, we have to deny ourselves, to perhaps expect trouble, to have a challenge, to have a certain level of confrontation, perhaps even death itself. But he promises, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. We had two stories earlier. What happened in those stories? Well, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They chose to obey God. They stayed behind the line that God had drawn in the sand. They said to the king, we will not bow down and worship your God because our God can save us from your fiery furnace and even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship the false God that you have set up. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And you know the story, God saves them. One like the Son of Man is seen walking in the fire with them and they are saved. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself acknowledges the one true God. We can't say that he's come to full faith yet. That may come later. But at least God gets the glory. Because they refused to cross the line in the sand. What about Nate, Jim, Ed, Peter and Roger? Well, they made direct contact with the Huani tribe. They flew their aeroplane into a sandbank beside a river and waited for the Huani to come to them. And all five of them were brutally murdered by the tribe. Brutally murdered. They never saw the tribe brought to Jesus Christ. And we sitting here may well think, what a waste. What a waste. But actually their deaths, when the story came out, particularly in America itself, their deaths and the courage that they showed and the desire they had to reach out to other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ galvanized a great outpouring of resources and manpower from people who wanted to complete the job of reaching the world for Jesus, to evangelize the world. Part of that was that the organization that Nate Saint flew his plane for ultimately became Missionary Aviation Fellowship. 
which is still currently flying aircraft right across the world in missionary causes. Not only that, but a few years later, two or three years after their deaths, two missionaries made contact again with the Huani tribe and took them the gospel. And as a result, many of the Huani tribe became followers of Jesus. Who were the two missionaries who went? Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's widow. Again, despite the deaths, God got the glory. So to conclude, lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, Jesus said. Are we just talking about physical death here? Like Nate and Jim and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Well, probably not, at least not yet. Perhaps in our children or grandchildren's time, that may be the situation that is being faced. But following Jesus might cost us our reputation. It might cost us our friends. It might cost us our priorities or our money or our time or all of the above. Is it a price worth giving to give up what is our most precious plans, our most precious desires, our most precious hopes and dreams, and instead give Jesus and the gospel our highest priority? What, I wonder, will we not do, despite the possible consequences, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and instead follow Jesus? Or what will we do, despite the possible consequences of following Jesus, like Nate and Jim and the others? Jesus concludes the passage that we read together by saying, Some here, some here who he was talking to, will not die before they see the kingdom of God come with power. What does that mean? Whatever else seeing the kingdom of God come with power might mean, it might mean seeing the transfiguration, which happens in our next section. It might mean seeing the crucifixion. It might mean seeing the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Surely whatever else it includes, it must include the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When the disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them with power so that they would be witnesses. The Holy Spirit gives the disciples the power to preach, the power to heal, the power to live for Jesus, and for many of them ultimately the power to die. And that, surely, is the same Holy Spirit that's available to you and to me here in the 21st century. Have we really thought through what it means to follow Jesus? Have we decided where we might draw the line in the sand beyond which we will go or we will not go? Will we be disciples of Jesus who take up our cross and follow him?